0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they
1: need during the pandemic and beyond.
0: Hi, I'm Sheikh Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Rachel Salas, a professor in the Department of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine with a joint appointment in the School of Nursing. She's also the Director for Ambulatory Sleep Services and Assistant Medical Director at the Johns Hopkins Center for Sleep and Wellness. Other leadership activities include being the former Director of Interprofessional Education and Collaborative Practice for the School of Medicine and Director of the Neurology Clerkship. She's also a past chair of the American Academy of Neurology Consortium of Clerkship Directors. Dr. Salas is a certified strengths and life coach and uses a strength-based approach and coaching to connect to, support, and develop those involved with her educational mission and clinical practice. And I first had the opportunity to learn from Dr. Salas about a decade ago, the first time I was in med school at Johns Hopkins. I'm looking forward to speaking with her about what it takes to be successful in neurology clerkship and beyond into, into practice. So, Dr. Salas, it's great to reconnect. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to connect and, and talk about med school.
0: <laughs> well, so I, obviously I know a bit more about your background than our listeners right now. So we like to ask our guests to, in their own words, tell us what got them interested in a career in medicine, and then in your case, neurology.
1: I don't think I was interested in medicine growing up as a kid. I, I didn't have any any family members or close friends of the family that were in healthcare. But in middle school, I remember a group of high school students from a, a magnet school in San Antonio. They came to tell us about their high school, which was Health Careers High School. And it was a program that you had to apply for. So I applied and, and in that school I, I really got exposed to physicians, nurses, medical technologists, physical therapists, just the whole gamut. And and that's the first time where I thought, you know what, I, I think I, I really like healthcare and I'm not sure what I wanna be, but I know that I wanna be involved in healthcare. So that was kind of the early start.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Those pipeline programs or those early exposures seem to be a common thread among many of our guests as far as what they differentiate into ultimately. And so within medicine, so you're in med school, is that when you decided to go into neurology and then sleep medicine? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, I, I was kind of, I wasn't sure. You know, I, I liked internal medicine. I thought I thought that's what I'd probably go into once I started my clerkships. But I, I would say that going into medical school, I thought I would be interested in OB-GYN. And then in third year, I really was fascinated with internal medicine, but I knew that I probably would want to focus. I was thinking rheumatology. And then I did my neurology clerkship kind of towards the end and just really was fascinated by it. I I felt like it was the only, I don't know, the only specialty where it could actually change who a person was, right? You know, if you have a stroke or a tumor in the brain, it could actually impact someone's personality, which I had not seen anyone anywhere else i mean it could it could affect who they were right so that that was very fascinating i also saw there was a lot of opportunity in in this particular field
0: before we go into sleep medicine i actually want to double click on that because you're obviously you had a, a really important and life-changing neurology clerkship and now you've been chair of the AAN's consortium of clerkship directors in neurology, what, you know, has, was that kind of a full circle moment for you? Like what, what's what been like a highlight of being so involved in running a neurology clerkship and then also helping the AAN with their consortium?
1: Yeah, as I take take pause and just kind of reflect, you know, of where, of where I am now and, and really trying to have an effect and maybe even an impact on, on future healthcare clinicians right now I actually, so I was the, the the chair for the consortium, but now I actually am the chair for the undergraduate education subcommittee at the AAN. So basically kind of overse- our committee is really charged with overseeing medical education and neurology. I, I could say even globally, because the AAN definitely has a global presence. So, you know, helping with the pipeline, getting students exposed to neurology. Cause like I said, even for me, it was kind of on the later end. And I think a lot of students come through our clerkship and and are very interested, but they feel like they don't have enough time to apply. They feel like it's too late and that's actually not the case. So I want to have that national and and even global impact. And the American Academy of Neurology has has allowed me to do that. So it's, it's just really rewarding to be involved.
0: Definitely. That's awesome. And you know, there's that saying of act locally, but think globally. And obviously, you're helping have a global impact on on neurology education. So going to local, you know, one of the main reasons I've come back to med school is actually because of my interest in neurology and psychiatry, you know, brain-computer interface, AI, psychedelics, those kind of things. And as you may know, Hopkins is a is a leader in several of those. I'm curious, you know, what advice would you give to me, you know, thinking locally for approaching the neurology clerkship, you know, before, during, and and after, because I know many of our audience may be interested in that hearing from a a clerkship director.
1: Yeah, I always say to be open during your clerkship, right? Because I think a lot of students have an interest when they come into med school and that might be propagated or or changed in your preclinical years, and then you have this idea But I I encourage people to be pretty open, you know, but if you know that you're interested in a particular area, like in your case, neuro or psych, then it may be worth, you know, trying to, if you can, sometimes you can't, but if you can get it a little earlier or, you know, reaching out to faculty or some of the residents in that specialty and asking them, you know, what do they like about the field, what the field's like for them, what are they going to, what are their plans, what are their career plans? And I think by, by listening to people that are currently in it gives you, you know, some real, some really great insight. I, I think that listening to why people go into specialties and what they've gotten out and if, whether or not they have regrets, I think is, is very telling, but then also observing them, right? What does their typical week look like? And if you only talk to faculty, or if you only talk to residents, I think that, that, that field of view might be a little bit skewed.
0: Hmm yeah definitely because they're obviously in the in the thick of it, and it depends on who you talk to. there's private neurology, there's you know academic, there's industry now, a lot of a lot of industry work happening in in the field. I'm curious so so I kind of interrupted you as you were going into how you focused on sleep medicine. So sleep has become a very important it feels it was always important, but it's become much more in the public consciousness over the last several years. One of our guests on the podcast was Ariana Huffington who's written a book or two about sleep and she along with Matt Walker and several others have, have really raised the profile. Tell us about your interest in sleep and and how that, you know, what what the work you do at Hopkins is related to that.
1: Yeah, so I was having a conversation with one of my peer residents several years ago. And I was thinking at the time that I would, you know, everyone in, in neurology, well, I'm not going to say everyone, but many are always fascinated with stroke or neurocritical care. And and that's kind of where I was feeling that excitement. But I remember having this conversation with my peer and telling them that I really liked electrophysiology and, and was thinking maybe about epilepsy, right, doing some training there And my chief resident at the time was in the room and he had already matched. He was going to go to a sleep fellowship at UNC. And he heard me talking and he said, Rachel, why, why I'm listening to you? Why why haven't you thought about sleep? And I turned to him and said, yeah, because I I just feel like it's too much sleep apnea. It's like very pulmonary. And he, he was like, no, no. He's like, it's actually very neuropsych, right? He goes like, there's narcolepsy, there's insomnia, restless leg syndrome, REM behavioral sleep disorder, which I didn't know what that was really at that time. But he, he, he kind of, you know, opened the door and he said, you know, I, I really think you, you should do a rotation, an elective, and just check it out. He goes, because it really has a lot of the components. And he goes, I, I know you also really liked internal medicine. And he goes, I think that you'll really like sleep medicine. So I listened to him. I did a, a one-month elective rotation in sleep, and I've never looked back.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, we spend a third to a fourth of our life doing it. You know, what, what are your observations on kind of where the most exciting research areas? Because I've heard everything from, you know, sleep, lack of sleep, you know, contributes to dementia and, you know, even early onset Alzheimer's, you know, in addition to all the other, you know, chronic stressors that people face. So is there anything you want to comment on on your research on sleep or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the field is is just wide open. We're learning so many things. Sleep is one of those one of those basic human needs that crosses all fields, no matter what type of specialty you go into, whether it's orthopedics, ob pediatric, whatever, your patients very likely are going to suffer from some sleep issues, right? At, at least some point or another. But what I think is fascinating right now, kind of getting into precision medicine, right? Is, you know, the timing of things. Timing is so important. I think that there's a lot of focus on, you know, getting seven to nine hours of sleep. And obviously that quantity is important, but for some individuals, the timing is either just as important or even more important. So in other words, if you're sleep deprived, like, you know, like I was in residency or in med school, not only was I sleep deprived, but I would go to bed at different times, wake up at different times. And that actually was doing more harm. And so what I think is fascinating now with the research is we're finding that taking certain medications at certain times in certain people is actually important. So you'd actually get benefits of taking it at the right time.
0: That's fascinating. That's yeah, I think you're the first guest we've had in the podcast who specifically mentioned the timing aspect because obviously everyone talks about the quality and, you know, how they measure sleep, ranging from you know, wrist actigraphy, which we've seen to a funny story is a decade ago, when I was again, the first time I was in mid school, I bought this EEG headband called a Zio. They're since bankrupt, but there's other EEG headbands that have become popular. And I would sleep with it just to understand my, you know, my my brain waves and, you know, what phases of sleep I was in. And I would try listening to med school lectures while sleeping to see, you know, would that affect my REM or affect anything. And the results showed that I actually was a lot more waking up moments, micro waking up moments where I didn't remember waking up that much, but obviously I was. And so the overall sleep quality was decreasing. So we couldn't really learn by osmosis and just listen to lectures as you're sleeping. That, that did not work or has not worked yet, as far as I know. Going into, you know, on this quality, on this topic of sleep and, you know, health burnout, I think it relates to burnout. You mentioned when you were a resident, you weren't getting much sleep. You know, I'm also interested because your background as a strengths and life coach. So clearly, you know, sleep and, and overall health are very important to you. Tell us about what got you interested in that and, you know, if you have any observations on, you know, whether that affected maybe your interprofessional education interests since you work at the School of Medicine, School of Nursing, and you have this Strengths and Life Coach background.
1: Yeah. So I think it was in 2015, I participated in a leadership program at the American Academy of Neurology. And that was the first time they sent me a link for the Clifton Strengths, And, you know, at the time I was like, okay, what is what is this horoscope stuff? But, you know, I'm always like interested in like learning something new. So I took it and at the end of it, I got a really pretty, nice report. And for the first time, I recognized that, hey, this is something that they're looking at. You know, they're looking at the things that I'm kind of, kind of already good at. Right. And, and you know, a lot of times as a clinician, I, I feel like we're, we're we're being told, you know, you need to see more patients. You need to do more. You need to publish more. You need to do more research. You always got to work on your weaknesses, right? And and so I really like this a positive psychology approach. Like, what are you good at naturally, and let's help you be better. So that was my first exposure, and then I went to the workshop, and we had a full day session on on the Clifton strengths, on how what, you know what your strengths are, what do they mean, what are your weaknesses, and in, in, in relation to that. And I was just so it was a transformative moment for me at that moment. And then they, they said, okay, now we want you to meet with a coach. And I remember thinking like, okay, this person, I'm going to meet with this person for an hour. They're not a clinician. They have no idea of what I'm going through. Is this really, you know, I'm busy. I have, it was at a conference too. So I was like, I have a lot of other things I should be doing. I almost was going to get out of it. And I went and that changed my life forever that was the transformative moment for me. And so I went home and then kept thinking about it. And so I reached out to the coach and I said, Hey, you know, how can we bring this to Hopkins? I have an undergrad program, a pre-med program at the college. And, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out if they want to be a physician, a nurse, a researcher, that's what they're trying to figure out. I said, but in reality, what I really think they need is to figure out who they are. Right to have some insight, and I said I would really love to bring this to them. I would have loved to have this, you know, experience so much earlier in my career. Like here, I was like kind of what they quote call mid career, and and barely getting this. And I was like, I want to bring this to Hopkins. So I convinced her. I I told her I said, I can't pay you because coaches make a you know they they charge quite a bit. And I said. I, I I'm gonna try to get some grants, but I if I can bring you here, maybe we can kind of study this and build something. And she agreed, so she came and I started working with my pre docs. They loved it, and then over time I brought my med students because I have a medical education research elective. It's called the Osler apprenticeship that started in neurology, and now I think at this point almost all of our core clerkships at Hopkins have an apprenticeship kind of version of our OA program, and so they get the coaching and they get that, you know, experience. And, and then I've brought it through to faculty. And I actually even do it with patients. But we could we could talk about that if you're interested later. And at one point, I said, Carrie, and that's the coach, I said, Carrie, I need to find a way I can't get these grants. I think coaching might be too still, you know, too new. How can we continue this? Right? And, and but I want to pay you and she she's the one that said, Rachel, you should go get certified. And I thought that was crazy. I was like, I'm too busy. I don't have time, you know, once again, but I did it and I've never looked back. And like I said, now I'm coaching patients. I I have coaching involved with everything I do in all my programs and it's kind of my way of giving back. So, you know, I run house staff program, a, a distinction track for health system science and health humanities. And I have, you know, coaching in the health system science track. So I do it as much as I can. And it's just been so, it's been so great. And, you know, I hear good feedback from the people that are in my programs that that have access to that. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that it continues to grow, but we'll see.
0: That's awesome. And I love how, again, the diverse groups you're working with, ranging from pre-meds to patients. What's like the, you know, 60, or one to two minute elevator pitch on, co- you know, strengths in life coaching. Like what's the framework, anything that our audience maybe want to do, you know, where can they go to learn more, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so coaching has really gotten a lot of interest, especially in healthcare and academia. You know, there, there there's a push for precision medicine on the clinical side, but I think in, on the academic side, there's a push for like this precision professional development. You know, this precision mentorship. So strengths based approach. You know, back in the '90s, the psychologists, you know, up until then, were kind of focused on what's wrong with people, right? And and a group of them said, well, what if what do we, what happens if we focus on what's right with people and and help them be better, right? And so that's kind of where that positive psychology approach started and so the idea here is you take an a, an inventory and there's many out there. I mean Clifton Strengths is not the only one. There's DIS, there's you know there's there's tons of other ones that have this positive psychology approach. There's the VIA Strengths, the Virtues in Action, which I like to use too. And the idea is that you you identify what your top 5 kind of signature strengths are. And then you 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 kind of look to see where they show up and how they show up for you, and so for me, my top strengths are in Clifton strengths are, are individualization, strategic adaptability, arranger, and activator. Now, I when I first saw those words, <laughs> I was like, I would never say I'm one of my strengths is individualization, right? And so when I learned about that, this was actually something that I think is a talent for me, but that I was assuming everyone had right? And so if you assume that one of your strengths, everyone has, you don't even recognize it, right? So individualization, I'm really good, at least how it shows up for me is I'm really good at finding the right person for the right job. I'm, I'm pretty good at seeing if someone's going to fit in our culture, like in our sleep center. Like if we're hiring someone, I'm really good at pulling out. I always say like the diamond in the rough, when I think about my pre-docs, you know, like I, I asked them, what are you interested in? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And, and I'm pretty good at figuring out something that they might not have seen for themselves, right? So so that was one of the strengths that I did, I recognized I had, but I didn't think it was a strength. I, again, I thought everybody had it. And then my last strength, the activator, on the positive side, you know, I'm really good at getting people motivated, excited, getting things started, right? But for me, that one, even though it's one of my strengths, it was so raw, that it was actually a weakness for me. It was getting me in trouble more than it was helping me. So when I learned to like harness that and put some intention to really grow it, I hadn't had so much success in my career until I did that, you know? So I think that those kind of transformative, you know, moments for me to kind of identify something I wasn't even getting giving myself credit. And then one, another of my strengths that was too raw and toning it down, you know, I, I think- that experience has allowed me to really connect with other people and and identify who they are, who do they want to be? You know, and at Hopkins, I mean, I think you could could relate to this very traditional place. You know, you come in here, you get your K award, once you're faculty, you get your R01, you publish, you go do lots of global talks, and then you get promoted as professor, right? But that's just not how it is anymore. We want people to be their authentic selves. Who are they? Who do they want to be? what are their strengths? How can we help you match your strengths, your values with the work and the meaningful, you know, career you want to have? And so I I think that there's a big shift and I'm seeing that at Hopkins, there's a lot of faculty getting interested in coaching and there's different ways to do that. I really love the strengths-based approach and highly recommend that for anybody. It's just been wonders, not, not only for the work I do, but for me personally, in and outside of work.
0: I love that. That's, there's so much more. We could have an entire podcast just on this and uh, related to concepts like like Ikigai, which we've mentioned on the podcast before and trying to get people to be more self-aware before they even decide to go to med school or maybe, maybe PA is more relevant for their skill set or interest or psychology. A fellow Hopkins professor that maybe you know is David Yadin, who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research and worked with Martin Seligman on positive psychology. And I love this focus that you and he both have on on human flourishing and, and you know making sure your mentees flourish. Before we move off this topic, I did want to allow you to talk a bit more about how you do this with patients. Because I think be- behavioral counseling of patients is a really important skill, I know for all physicians and clinicians, since so much of healthcare is chronic and preventable that if you're able to kind of do motivational interviewing and counseling and share decision-making, these things can make a big difference. Is that, is that how you're applying strengths in life coaching with patients or is this something else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, with the push again about precision medicine, personalization, you know, we have limited time with patients in the room to figure out what's going on, what we're going to recommend. And so when I have patients do their strengths and they share those top five with me already, I'm not going to label them, but I kind of know a little bit more about them without, you know, knowing a lot more about them, right? So if someone, for example, is a, a learner, right? I know that this type of patient probably is going to like some, you know, websites or some materials to read about their diagnosis. They're going to want to go look up more information. And so I try to put that in their after visit summary. If, if someone has a strength of analytical I know that I'm going to probably need to spend a little bit more time reviewing their sleep study report, talking about the different numbers, or if they're on CPAP, looking at those numbers from their smart card. So it's helped me kind of tailor you know, my clinical care to my patients. And if I had it my way, I would have all my patients complete, <laughs> complete this. Right now, I kind of just offer it to, to some people that I think might, might benefit. And what I mean by that is there's patients with insomnia, which is the most common sleep disorder that we see in our center. And what I noticed when I was actually getting trained in, in the strengths-based approach, I realized, you know, this sounds, this, this sounds like some of my patients with insomnia who at night sit up and they're worrying, right? Or they're thinking about, so wor- the worriers tended, I wondered, I was like, maybe they have the strength of empathy that's dialed up too much. It's too raw. So when they sit down or lie down to go to bed, they're constantly thinking like, well, this could go wrong or I'm worried about my family member. And then on the flip side, there's a strength called the achiever, which is actually the most common strength worldwide. These are the people that tend to like to have a to-do list, like putting things on the list and checking them off. So if you're an achiever and it's raw, then I have seen that kind of come out at night for some of my patients that are thinking about like all the things they need to do still or the things they haven't done. And so what I started, you know, as a small pilot, I I offered it to some of my insomnia patients. And I said, you know, if you do your strengths, I can come up with a a personalized, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and kind of implement some of these strategies so that we try to kind of be more intentional with some of these strengths and fine tune them. And, you know, I've had a lot of success with it and, you know, again, it's been kind of a pilot side project for me. I'm hoping at some point to, To you know, maybe maybe you know, apply for some grant funding, but I I just I just it just makes sense to me finding out who people are, what they're naturally, they can't help it, that's how they are, and using that to help provide better care for them and connecting with them.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's a great great message. And frankly, you preempted the question I had on on advice for for learners. When you talked about advice for going into neurology clerkship, you're talking about strengths and life coaching as a way you know, which is good advice for anybody to become more self aware maybe double or triple down on strengths. So I want to be aware of time. So I only had two other questions. The first is just what general advice do you give and do you want to give to our audience about meeting their career as a current or future healthcare professional? And, you know, because especially because someone like you, you've worn multiple hats as a clinician, a researcher, a coach, an educator, uh, etc.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest advices I, I give now is really thinking about who are you who do you want to be and what do you want to do, right? And, and getting connected with your authentic self, because at the end of the day, if you're chasing, you know, something that maybe perhaps your parents, you know, want you to do, like be a doctor or be a cardiologist or a neurologist, whatever it is, then it's going to catch up with you. And I think that's a lot of time why we see a lot of problems with, you know, wellness later is because I don't think people are really living out who they really are, who they want to be. And I see that. I see that with my coaching, with, with all of the students, you know, and even early career faculty now. And I think taking that time to really connect with who you are and some of the, you know, there's a lot of inventories out there that at least give you something to react to, right? They're not perfect, but they're, it's something to react and kind of reflect on, right? And learn a little bit more. So that, that would be my first sense. And, and, and I think that applies to students coming onto the clerkship, right? How do I learn best? you know, who do I connect with? What are my strengths? Oh, I'm really good at connecting with people. Then great. Then that's where you're going to be able to shine. And so maybe you'll do better with your clinical evaluations, right? Or if you're somebody that likes to learn and do practice questions, maybe more on the analytical side, you know, I think knowing these things about you really can set yourself up for success. The other recommendation as a clerkship director, I recommend, and as an educator is to be proactive. I think that sometimes learners find themselves in situations outside of school right like personal things especially coming out of a pandemic there was some crazy tough things happening for some of our learners right and you know i think in medicine especially where you know it's always like well you got to be strong you know you got to you got to handle everything and and what what i found and what i saw is that sometimes our learners wouldn't tell they wouldn't ask for help and then they would take a test or you know kind of push through the clerkship and and you know, people, people can, it, it might show up on your evaluation. So if you have something going on, is reach out for help. I mean, your, your clerkship directors, your deans, even your peers, I mean, they're very supportive now and people are, are starting, we're starting to bring those silos down and, and be authentic and vulnerable with each other so that we all know that it's tough. It's tough to be a med student. It's tough to be a resident, a fellow and faculty, any clinician, right? We deal with life and death. So I, I I want to encourage people to to talk if you're if you're if you're having issues at home or if you're having difficulty comprehending the information. There's so many resources that are available. And I, I honestly don't think that, you know, they're they're adequately used as as to the full potential.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful advice. My last question, is there anything else you want to share about you, about any of the programs, pre-docs or the OSHA apprenticeship program, your work at the School of Nursing? Anything else you want our audience to know about about you before we let you go?
1: I mean, I I guess I could kind of thread a lot of my programs for the the way I structure my programs. Well, one, I get inspiration from reality TV shows. Like I know. So I know it's don't judge me on it, but I love a good reality TV show. And my pre-doc program was inspired by Project Runway. Okay, I kind of see myself as Tim Gunn, maybe Heidi Klum, but more Tim Gunn. So I get inspired, but I think what I try to do is think back when I was a college student or a med student, and I think about what would I, what would I have loved to have? And so I try to do that for my program. So for my pre-doc program, inspired by Project Runway, but modeled like an internal medicine residency, right? Because for me, when I, I didn't know what a resident was, what a fellow, what a, you know, at grand rounds, what is that, you know? So all of my programs have been very experiential. So I I have in my pre-doc program, I have three chiefs that I select. These are students that are with me for a couple of years. They run the program. And so they get opportunity to lead and peer mentor. They work on many projects with me. All of them end up at least with one scholarly product by the end of the program. All of them have gone into healthcare, not necessarily to be physicians. Some of them have gone into industry. Like you mentioned earlier, some of them have gone into medical law veterinarians, you know, but they've all had that healthcare. So I do think the pipeline is very important. And then for my Osler apprenticeship, these are students that are interested in med ed or, you know, education. And so they kind of get the behind the scenes. They have to do the clerkship first, and then they work on a, a scholarly product or not a product, but a scholarship in education, typically in the neurology clerkship to make it better and then they get kind of to see behind the scenes of what being a clerkship director is like. Because, you know, as a student, and I remember doing the same thing, you kind of go through and you're like, why are they making us do this busy work? Why are we doing this? And it's like, okay. So so as the OAs come in, they get to see, we de-identify some of the feedback for the year. They get to see what their colleagues are saying. They get to ask us questions. Like, why can't we do this? And we explain, well, we actually did that five years ago and here's what we learned, right? And this is why we're doing this. So I think- If you're interested in med ed as a student, you know, looking for opportunities like programs like this could be beneficial. And if you're a faculty listening in, you know, how do you get promoted, especially at a place like Hopkins, which traditionally has been very, you know, research oriented, basic science, translational research, which is fabulous. But what about the educators? And I was able to get promoted as an educator, the same criteria, everything. but I just did it through education. And one of the ways to be that productive is to build and lead programs like this where it's a win-win. It's a win for the learner. It's a win for the faculty. And, you know, why not celebrate that, right?
0: That's awesome. That's really great. My hope is some listeners, you know, they reach out after hearing this episode and, you know, whether they're a faculty member and they want to maybe bring a version of the Osler Apprenticeship to their institution or their student who's just interested in career advice or strengths in life coaching, that they'll reach out. So with that, Dr. Salas, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to be on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you've done over the past several years and decades to to actually raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system.
1: Well, again, thanks for having me and you know, happy to talk to anyone. And we called it the Osler Apprenticeship for, for, and the pre-doc program for a reason, because you could take it to your institution and make it the, and we actually had the University of Rochester, New York, they they started their own pre-doc program. So they have that program. We have one starting in Southwest. So there's opportunities. Why reinvent the wheel? Just take what's there and make it your own, right? Modify it to adapt to your health system or your environment. So, you know, thank you so much for, for, you know, talking with me and chatting and letting me talk about all the work I'm doing and, you know, I I wish you the best of luck. You've done some amazing things. And, you know, I think getting that education out, connecting with others, I think, I think the work you're doing is amazing. So congrats to you as well.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Salas. Really appreciate that. And look forward to seeing you on the wards in a a couple months. So with that, I'm Shiv Vaglani and thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.